A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, part two, about the Jewish history of Sigit, has been generously sponsored in memory of Rabbi Yikusil Yehuda, Ben Chaim Nassan, Zechreni Levracha, born in Sigit and after the war settled in Bara Park and Davin in the Sigit Shul, led by the Bayrach Moshe Zatzal, followed by his son, Reb Zalman Leib Shlita, the Karan Satna Rebbe. Now, I got loads of feedback on part one. It's really amazing how quick and the volume of feedback on Sigit has been. I guess it's a really popular topic. A lot of proud descendants from uh, Sigit and I'm glad that everyone's enjoying. So while part two was already pretty much prepared, so I couldn't really incorporate most of the feedback I received into this episode, but there was one contributor, Machin uh, Magid Mordechai, who was so gracious to share an enormous uh, amount of information, resources, sources, research he's conducted, and he's done an incredible uh, uh, amount of research on the his Jewish history of Sigit um, and anything related to that. And I want to thank Machen Magid Mordechai from the outset for sharing his sources, and I did utilize some of it in part two. Uh, thank you. Now, if you want to help spread the word about Jewish History Soundbites, the podcast, then tell your friends and family about it, encourage them to check it out and listen. You can also leave a rating and review on any podcast platform. That is also quite valuable in helping get the word out about the podcast. So thank you for that as well. So in part one of the Jewish history of Sigit, we saw some of the early years, how the population grew and it became a, the district capital of, or always was the district capital of the Marmarush uh, district of um, in, in what was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was part of the time Romania, part of the time Hungary, and, um, and the flavor of the town and how it grew and developed over the years. And I focused a large uh, chunk of, the, of part one on the Kuntras Asvekas, Rabbi Yudha Kahana Heller, and his descendants, the Kahana family, and how they were powerful members of the Sigit community uh, in the century before the war. So today, we also mentioned, um, sorry, in part one we also mentioned um, 
some of the other important families and 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 some of the stories of of the rabbis of the town, Rabbi the Mudrin and others, and the Freund family, and there's a, a few others, and that covered a lot of the history of the town. But today, I want to progress both chronologically and as well as focus, zoom in and focus on one of the most other, uh, the family that's probably most associated with the history, Jewish history of Sigit, and that is the Teitelbaums. Teitelbaum family, the Hasidic dynasty, the Rabbanim, the rabbis of the town throughout the ages. And we'll focus on them and hopefully get to some other stories and personalities of Sigit's Jewish history as well. So we start with Rabbi Eliezer Nissen Teitelbaum, who was a son of the Yismach Moshe of Il, who was obviously the founder, uh, established the Teitelbaum Hasidic dynasty, the father of Hungarian Hasidus. And one of his sons was Rabbi Eliezer Nissen, who um, was the first one of the Teitelbaums to become a rabbi in Sigit. It didn't last very long. He was only there for about six years. He didn't get along with elements of the community. There was some opposition to his position, especially from the Kosov, later on Vizhnitz community. They were opposed to him, and there was a whole issue. And he later left, and he returned to his father in Il. Um, so that didn't work out long term. However, his son, Rabbi Lezer Nissen's son, was the famous Rabbi Kassil Yehuda Teitelbaum, the Yetev Lev of Siget, and he was essentially the founder of the Siget Hasidic dynasty, and his family remained there until the war. And the story of how that came about was that in 1858, the rabbi of the town, Rabbi Yosef Stern passed away. He was the rabbi of Sigit for quite a few years. He had succeeded Rabbi Lezer Nissen Teitelbaum, who had left some years before, this son of the Yismach Meishu I mentioned. And this Rabbi Yosef Stern was also the nephew and son-in-law also of Rabbi Nachem Mendel Stern, who I mentioned in part one, who was the earlier rabbi and was close with the Kosov Vizhnitz faction in town. At this time, Rabbi Kassil Yehuda, the Yetiv Lev, the grandson of the Yismach Maisha, was in between rabbinical positions. He had been a rabbi of a couple of different towns in Galicia um, and other places. And following an interesting sequence of events, um, the wealthy community leader um, Shmuel Zanvil Kahana had passed away, and the Yetiv Lev was invited to deliver the main hespid at his funeral by Rabbi Huda Madrin, who we encountered in last episode. And he, he was this charismatic personality who spoke very well, and he captivated the audience by this hespid. And through that and through several other sequences of events, um, it led to his appointment at, as, the, uh, as the rabbi, the successor uh, and rabbi of the town, of Sigit. Now, like I said, Vizhnitz were the primary group there, and the Yetev Lev was able to receive the backing of Rabbi Nachem Mendel Hager of Vizhnitz. So that was, that was crucial in the support, and he was able to uh, initially have that support. Now, with pretty much from then until the end of the war, I'm sorry, until the war, excuse me, um, until the end of the history of the town, this family, the Teitelbaum family, would have control of the rabbinate. So it became this rabbinical dynasty and also a Hasidic dynasty. In addition, the Etevlev established a prominent yeshiva in the town, which he and later his descendants headed as Rosh Yeshiva. So they really filled three roles simultaneously 
which was not terribly rare for Hungarian Hasidic leaders, it should be noted, but they were, all the title bounds um, were rabbis of the town, rabbis, paiskim, leaders, rabbinical leaders. They were also Hasidic rabbis, and they were Rashi Yeshiva of the, the Sigit Yeshiva, which was quite a prominent Yeshiva in that area of Hungary. So the Yet of Lev didn't just put Sigit on the Orthodox and Hasidic map, making it a prominent town in the Jewish scene. He really had an impact all over Marmarish, all over that district, that area. And this was at the far reaches of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So it needed to, you know, in order to put it on the map, it needed quite some effort. It was far, very far from the more prominent areas such as Budapest or Preshburg, or especially from the Hasidic centers of Galicia, that was, those were considered the main areas. Marmarish was, was considered at the time before the Yetiv Lev as, as a, you know, somewhat of a backwater area of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Yetiv Lev, through his influence and leadership, Marmarish became on the map, not just Sigurd itself, but that whole area. And the fire and extremism of the Yetiv Lev, which would be the hallmark of the Sigit Teitelbaum dynasty throughout the ages, led him to somewhat distance himself. He was very suspicious of the mainstream Hungarian orthodoxy, which was based primarily in Preshburg, students of the Chsam Seifer, the family of the Chsam Seifer, um, Budapest to a certain extent as well, and the Yetavlev viewed that version of orthodoxy as too moderate. So you see the levels of extremity in Hungarian orthodoxy. So this was the Oberland, Preshburg, Hasam Seifer brand of Hungarian orthodoxy, and and uh, and the Yetavlev in Unterland was not so fond of it, and he wasn't especially fond of the Preshburg Ashkenaz hegemony over the entire Hungarian Orthodox community. So he refused to join what was known as the Lishka Hamerkazis, which was the, you know, the flagship Orthodox organization which organized all the kahilas of Orthodox communities in Hungary, especially after the great split, the great Tailung um, so the, 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 uh, between Orthodox and Neolog in Hungary in the mid-19th century, so the Orthodox communities were organized and centralized, especially centralized is the key word here, in this Lishka Hamerkazis, the central office, which was based in Preshburg until World War I, and after World War I in, in, uh, in, uh, in Budapest. So he wanted to retain his independence. He didn't like their the Pressburg control over Hungarian Orthodoxy. And it was kind of like a status quo community and not subservient to Pressburg. However, in the Etevlev's later years, he saw that his opponents within Sigit, primarily the powerful and rabbinical and wealthy Kahana family, who we met in part one, he sensed that they were not likely to appoint the Yetivlev's son, Rebchanani Yemtiv Lipa, as his chosen successor, which the Yetivlev wanted. So in his last years, the Yetivlev agreed that the Sigit community should join the mainstream Lishka Hamerkazi Orthodox communal network and officially be an Orthodox community within Hungarian Orthodoxy, which reversed his long-held position. And the condition was is that the Lishka Hamerkazis in Preshburg would support 
would provide support for his son's candidacy in the Siget Rabbinate following his passing. And that worked. And the Kedushas Yantif, Rabbi Hanani of Lipa Teitelbaum, succeeded his father in the Siget Rabbinate. But some in Siget, in the community, were opposed to this whole approach and to uh, the Kedushas Yantif's candidacy. So led by members of the Kahana family, they formed a separatist community within Siget in 1886, following the passing of the Yetiv Lev. Um, so it didn't work out well in the long term, but for a time there were two communities side, two orthodox communities side by side within Siget. There was the Kahana and somewhat Vizhnitz-led uh, community, um, which was a smaller one, Sfard community they called them, called themselves, um, and, 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 uh, and the Kedushas Yantif led the mainstream Siget, a Teitelbaum-led community of Hungarian, of, of Siget Orthodoxy. So that was, it didn't last long. The Kedushas Yantif eventually stamped out the opposition. There was a whole issue with Shechita. The Kedushas Yantif uh, didn't allow their Shechit to be the Shechit, to, to, to do the Shechita, so since the Shechita wasn't kosher, so the, no one was able to eat it, so the community kind of eventually collapsed, and they rejoined the mainstream Orthodox community. By the way, an ironic postscript, I have a neighbor here in Beit Shemesh who is a proud descendant of the Kahana and Freund family from Siget who enjoyed part one of this episode. So he bumped into me in Shul on Shabbos and he related to me this story over, over just now, this Shabbos, that his grandmother, um, uh, when the, when the Satmarov, Rabbi Yelish Teitelbaum, survived the Holocaust and arrived in Switzerland on the Kastner train at the end of the war. So he was greeted um, by a whole, a whole uh, group of local Swiss, Swiss Jews. And one of them was a Jewish woman who arrived with something to eat. For he, he was, Satmarov was weak and famished, and he was concerned regarding the kashras of the food. He didn't know this, who this woman was. So she introduced herself as an anical of one of the prominent kahanas in Siget. And based on that, he ate the food. So my take on that story was that even though the title bounds and the Kahanas engaged in disputes and even separated into two separate communities in 1886, but they still had enough respect for each other that, it, that their food was kosher. So it was kosher enough for the Satmarov to eat the Kahana Anikal's food. In any event, this new Kahila like, um, that, that the Kahanas had established uh, in opposition to the Kedushas Yantif's uh, um, leadership of the Siget community, so in 1886, so like many other breakaway kahilas in this region at the time, they utilized a quirk of history to allow themselves to separate and still be recognized as an official, official Jewish community by the Austro-Hungarian government, which was quite important. You needed to be recognized by the government. So they utilized, the, how do you separate and still be recognized as your own autonomous entity? So, a very interesting quirk of history, which was, wasn't only in Siget, it was in many Jewish communities at the time. Earlier on, before the Ottoman Empire, the, excuse me, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had controlled this area of Marmarush, there was the Ottoman conquest. The Ottoman uh, Empire of the Middle East had made, you know, controlled parts of Europe, Southern Europe, the Balkans, so they had moved up all the way into Austria and that area. 
Hungary. They controlled parts of Ukraine as well for in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Um, and the Ottoman conquest led to a migration of Sephardic Jews to these areas centuries earlier. Ottoman Empire. So even when the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, took over, when they when they pushed back, um, and the Ottoman Ottomans retreated, and now it was all incorporated into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But this Sephardic legacy created a space that the Austro-Hungarian government allowed the establishment of Sephard communities, they called them. And, and because there had been this legacy of Sephardic Jews in the Ottoman Empire living in these areas. So this was a legal loophole. So very often you were angry at the mainstream community in Marmarush, and many communities used this trick. You didn't like the mainstream Orthodox community. You weren't Neolog. You were still Orthodox. So you wanted to create your own community. So you had a breakaway community use this loophole and called themselves Sfard, especially Hasidim, because they daven in the Nusach that was called Sfard. Perhaps it's related to this. Perhaps not. It's a different story in any event. But they called themselves Sfard. Very often it was a Hasidic community who 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 um, who uh, executed this this uh, or utilized this loophole, executed this decision in order to split off and still be recognized as a legal entity of a community. Anyways, that's a completely a side point. In any event, it was um, the uh, Kedushas Yantif. Um, he, he, now, the Yativlev had several other sons who continued the Sigit dynasty in other, in other towns, but the Kedushas Yantif was the one who stayed in Sigit. This Lipa Teitelbaum. Um, he had a uh, um, he he used all these tactics to bring them bring this breakaway community into the mainstream. He eventually succeeded using the time-tested method of controlling the shaykhtim and regulating which ones were acceptable in kosher. That I mentioned. Now the Gershontov also headed his father's yeshiva, and under his tenure, it grew to around three hundred students. It was one of the largest in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. His influence and leadership was recognized well beyond Sigit to all over Transylvania. He continued the traditions of the Teitelbaum family, was considered the most extreme leader in the Orthodox Hungarian rabbinate, and he vocally opposed what he felt were the moderate trends of mainstream Hungarian orthodoxy, foreign languages, general studies, other signs of modernity. That's within Hungarian Orthodoxy. There's this general trend towards complete secularization in Hungary at this time, um, even assimilation. There's a general trend towards the growth of the neologues, which were kind of like the Hungarian reform. But even within the minority, this defensive minority of Hungarian Orthodoxy, the Chsam Seifer legacy in Oberland and the Teitelbaum and other Hasidic leaders in Unterland, that's Hungarian Orthodoxy. They're already a minority, but even within that minority, there's this infiltration of modernity, and which became accepted in, in Hungarian Orthodoxy, but the, the Kedushisyantiv was very much opposed, and he fought against this, all these intrusions of modernity with, to within his community, which he perceived as a challenge and threat of modernity. Now his oldest son was... Reb Chaim Tzvi, title bound, the Atzi Chaim of Sigit, who inherited the by now three positions, the Rabbi Avbezdin, Rabbi slash Avbezdin, the Rosh Yeshiva of the big Sigit Yeshiva, and of course also a Hasidic Rebbe. Now his youngest brother, there's a bunch of girls, uh, daughters of the Kedushis Yandav, and then there was the youngest son, 
which is a brother of the Atzi Chaim, that was Rabbi Yailish Teitelbaum, the future Satmarav. Now, when the Kedushas Yantiv passed away, so the Satmarav, the future Satmarav, Rabbi Yailish, he got nothing in Sigit. It all went to Reb Chaim Tzvi, that's Chaim. So he went off on his own career, which I've covered in podcasts about him at other times, so you should check those out. I did at least two. I probably should do another one or two. There's so much to say about the Satmarav. Uh, if I, um, um, so hopefully we'll get back to him one day. Um, so the Satmarav is, but just briefly, his in connection to his story in Sigit, we'll just mention a couple of, of, of Sigit connections to the Satmarav. So he's born in 1887 in Sigit to his father, the Kedushas Yantif, the Satmarav, the future Satmarav, Rabbi Eilish Teitelbaum. And at his bris in Sigit, the mile was Rabbi Meisha Greenwald, Arugas Abaisim, who was the rabbi in Chust, or Chist, the other large city in the Marmarish. And the Arugas Abaisim was Ashkenaz. He was he was a, a Oberlander originally. So you have a unity in the two major cities of Marmarush, the Teitelbaum Hasidic uh, Siget and the um, Arugas Abaisem, um, Rav Meisha Greenwald in Chist, and they, they, they're over the bris of the, the, uh, his son, uh, the, uh, the descendant of son, Rabbi Eilish, there's there's this uh, unity between those two factions, the two great rabbis in this area. So his bar mitzvah, the, the Rabbi Elish's bar mitzvah, was also obviously in Sigit in 1899. It was a important enough event that it was reported in the local newspapers. Rabbi Elish got married when he was 17, and his father, the Kedushas Yantif, was sick. So the wedding took place in Sigit, so that he would be able to attend and not the Kala's city, which was generally the custom. Um, and he passed away not long after his son's wedding, and the uh, um, and uh, Satmarov's older brother, that's Echayim, assumed all of their father's positions. The next twist in the Sigit Teitelbaum saga takes place in 1926. That's Echayim of Sigit, the oldest brother of the Satmarov, was only 46 years old, and he passed away. It wasn't terribly sudden, he was always a sickly individual, but he was very active in leadership until the very end. He had actually been meeting in Vienna with leaders of Agudis Yisrael, um, or Wolf Pappenheim and Pinchas Kohn, um, which he, that's Echaim, in the Teitelbaum tradition was not a part of and opposed to Agudis Yisrael, but still met. And then on his way home from Vienna, he passed away in Kleinvardian, another town in that area. And his uh, body was returned across the border to Romania, arriving in Sigit by train, accompanied by his younger brother, the, wasn't yet the Satmarov, but Rabbi Eilish. And the community in Sigit went into mourning. There's a large funeral. And in Sigit, the community saw itself as already moving in a more progressive direction, and they did not want to hire Rabbi Eilish, who was viewed as an extremist. He was viewed as having more extreme views in religious life and in his leadership methods. So the progressive leadership of the Orthodox community in Sigit, together with the Kahana Ashkenazi family, um, and together with the Hasidic communities and courts in town, other ones, Vizhnitz and Spink and the other ones, who opposed Rabbi Eilish, they all conspired together. Again, progressive Orthodox leadership, 
the Kahana family and all the other Hasidic communities in town. They, oppo- they were opposed to Rabbi Elisha's They all conspired together to not have him hired to succeed his brother in Sigit. A very interesting uh, story. And instead, the Atzechayim's 14-year-old son was named his successor, Reb Zalman Leib, Reb Kassil Yehuda II, called Reb Zalman Leib. Um, it was his 14-year-old, and, and Reb Yelish was very hurt by this. Um, and as a sort of compensation, it was arranged that this young boy, who was now crowned as the rabbi, would marry his uncle's daughter, Reb Yelish's daughter, so he'd maintain that connection to the rab- rabbinate. Reb Yelish, the future Satmarov was very hurt by the town of Sigurd's decision, and he even refrained from visiting his hometown for several years afterwards. And in the end, um, this this young boy, um, Reb Zalman Leib, he um, he becomes the Rav. Obviously, it took a few years till he really grew into his uh, position, um, but um, his first wife, who is his uncle's daughter, passed away uh, very young, only a year after their marriage, very tragic. Um, so he remarried uh, someone else, but he emerges as the rabbi and successor in the traditional three positions as he grows older, the Rosh Hashiva, the Hasidic Rebbe. And this last chapter of Sigit in the Teitelbaum family is a tragic one because this Reb Zalman Leib meets the same fate as his community. He's murdered in the gas chambers at Auschwitz with the deportation of Hungarian Jewry there in the summer of 1944. However, the story of both Sigit and the Teitelbaums is not done. The continuation of both the stories is through the younger son of Reb Chaim Tzvi Teitelbaum, Natsi Chaim. His name was Reb Meisha Teitelbaum, uh, named for his illustrious ancestor, the Ismach Moshe, and later known as the Bayrach Moshe. And he is, in my humble opinion, an underrated historical figure. I would love to have the opportunity to do an episode about him one day. Very interesting life story, especially his early years, um, his later years in New York are more well known. Um, and outside of Satmar, in the Satmar community, he's very well known obviously, but outside of the Satmar community, he's not that well known or understood and is either seen in the context of being the nephew of the Satmarov or the father of the current uh, leaders of the Satmar community, the Rebbe's of the Satmar community, but I think that he stands on his own merits and had quite an interesting uh, life story. But in the context of this episode about Sigit, suffice to mention that Ramesha Taitulam also grew up in Sigit to a certain extent. He was away for many years. He uh, was a rabbi in other towns. Um, he lost his family in the Holocaust, his wife, his children, though he survived the camps, went through Auschwitz and I think Buchenwald, a couple of other camps. He then returned to Sigit after the war, after losing everything, after surviving through the camps, and he emerges as the rabbi of the reestablished Sigit Jewish community post-war. Amazing story. And he's very active in the leadership and rebuilding in the immediate post-war years of the Sigit Jewish community. But as communism strengthened, he didn't see a bright future for religious life in Romania, and therefore immigrated to the United States in the late 1940s. He settled in Barra Park as one of the early Rebbes, actually, in Barra Park. Most were still in Williamsburg and elsewhere. And he established the Atze Chaim Sigit Stiebel, and led the Sigit community as a sort of branch of the much larger and dominant Satmar emerging community of his uncle, Rabbi who also arrived in the United States in the late 1940s, with whom the Bayrach Maisha was quite close. And upon the Satmarov's passing without progeny in 1979, the torch of the Satmar leadership is passed to his nephew, Rabbi Maisha, 
uh, and essentially went back to Sigit. Uh, obviously, it's called Satmar. Um, so that's the, that's the story of the continuation of Sigit even into the post-war. Now, that's the title bounds. And we spent most of the episode discussing them, but I do want to mention a few other fascinating historical figures that um, were either leaders or members of the Sigit community and are part of its Jewish history. One of the most interesting ones that I found was Rabbi Dr. Shmuel Binyamin Danzig, who was a fascinating rabbinic personality who served in Sigit also until he was murdered by the Nazis along with his community during the Holocaust. Not only is his life story and his leadership in the Sigit community quite interesting, but it gives a nice insight into the diversity of the varied community with Orthodox community within Sigit in the decades leading up to the war. Rabbi Dr. Danzig was a student of the Pressburg Yeshiva, of the Shevet Seifer, the grandson of some Seifer, and also studied in Frankfurt by Rabbi Dr. Solomon Breuer, the son-in-law of Rav Hirsch, Rav Shamshrafal Hirsch. And he also got a doctorate in some German university near Frankfurt, or in Frankfurt, I don't remember. And then he's hired as a rabbi in Sigit, but not the main rabbi, because that was one of the title bounds. But he was one of the other Orthodox, uh, smaller communities within uh, Sigit, and that was surround, around the Vizhnitzer Kloys, which is one of the main shuls that I discussed in part one. So this, this, Danzig, this Rabbi Danzig, he was a prominent religious Zionist leader, and he was one of the heads of Mizrahi. He spoke from the pulpit in the Vizhnitzer Kloys in Hungarian and German. And it seems that he had support from the Vizhnitz community and from the Vizhnitzer Rebbe, the Avas Yisrael. But understandably, he and the Teitelbaums and the, their community did not exactly get along or see eye to eye. So it's fascinating that they both coexisted together. Um, and this Rabbi Danzig served as rabbi there for nearly 40 years until he was murdered with his family and community in the gas chambers at Auschwitz in the summer of 1944. There were some other famous people who grew up in Sigit, like I mentioned in part one, Eli Wiesel grew up in Sigit in a Hasidic home, I think it was Vizhnitz. If you check out the opening pages of his main book, he wrote many, many books, but his first and most important book and one of the best books ever written on the Holocaust, and I hope I imagine most people have read it, Night. Um, but the first few pages of the book, leading up to the Holocaust story, contains a rather vivid description of Jewish life in Sigit in the last years prior to the deportation to Auschwitz. I think it's a must-read. If I would have had time, I would have had read a passage from it here on the podcast. Such a rich description of Sigit in its last years before everything ended. You feel like you're there. And Eli Wiesel is such a great writer, and he really describes uh, Sigit of his youth in the last years as the war is beginning, up to the, leading up to the deportations. Fascinating. So Eli Wiesel grew up in, in Sigit. There was another one I mentioned just a few weeks ago in, in my episode on medicine in the Holocaust. I mentioned a, a Jewish woman, fascinating woman, Dr. Gisela Pearl. Uh, she grew up in Sigit and in, in, uh, in in a traditional home. Her father didn't want her to go to medical school because she he thought it would weaken her connection to religious observance. He finally relented and she became this gynecologist. And then when she's deported to Auschwitz in the summer of 1944, um, she's appointed by Dr. Yusuf Mengele, the SS uh, doctor, to be the doctor in the infirmary in the women's camp at Birkenau. And she how to provide medical care without medicine or antiseptics or even running water. She had to perform surgeries with a knife and no anesthesia. And she performed many abortions 
because a pregnant woman was a death sentence in Auschwitz, and she saved these women's lives. And she survived the war, moved to New York, published her memoir of her experiences um, in 1948, and then resumed her medical career at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan as a fertility specialist to counteract the abortions she had to perform during the war. So she is another a product of Siget. There was another interesting person who grew up there. His name was Leopold Greenwald, who was a historian, and he was a fascinating figure. Um, he grew up in Siget and studied in yeshivas in the area, including in Chist at the Rugas Abaisim. I'm not sure if he's related. He has the same last name. Um, he was always interested in history, devoted his life to researching and writing Jewish history, primarily Hungarian Orthodoxy and its challenges in the modern era. And he actually used to traverse Hungary, different towns, searching through communal archives, pincuses of, of the Kahals, and his personal favorite was examining gravestones in cemeteries across Hungary. So he and I actually would have gotten along well, because that's something I tend to do. Um, when he served in the Austro-Hungarian military during World War I, this Leopold Greenwald used to uh, use the opportunity afforded of exposure to other communities throughout Hungary, wherever the front was, and whenever possible, he would steal away from his unit and examine the local Jewish cemetery, the gravestones. Um, and in 1924, he immigrated to the United States, and he was Orthodox, right? He remained Orthodox, and he served as the rabbi of Columbus, Ohio, for 30 years until his passing. Another Siget native I bumped into um, it was Amos Manor, um, Amos Manor. Um, he he uh, was the director of the Shabak of Israel's uh, intelligence service for a decade, from 1953 until 1963. He grew up as Arthur Mendelovich. Um, he grew up in, in, in Siget, and uh, he was drafted in the Hungarian army during World War II into the labor brigades, and then he was deported in 1944 to Auschwitz, and he survived Auschwitz. And in 1947, he joined the, the, you know, the Bricha, the, the organization smuggling Jews into Palestine in defiance of British immigration restrictions. And he, he, uh, he, uh, and then he immigrated to Israel in 1949 and joined Israeli intelligence. He knew all loads of languages. He was very good for Israeli intelligence and became eventually the head of Israeli intelligence, incredibly enough. Like most other towns that were wiped out in the Holocaust, there are memorials in Israeli cemeteries to Siget. So there's, 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 there's that memorial. But to me, Siget doesn't need a memorial, a, you know, just a stone in an Israeli cemetery like so many other towns. There, Siget is alive and well. Through Satmar and Siget, it's, it's uh, very much uh, continued uh, uh, till today to a certain extent. But, um, but I hope that this episode brought much of the broader story, not just of Satmar and Siget and the Teitelbaums, which of course are a major story of the history of the town, but also um, of the diverse Jewish life there and through its centuries of history um, that it was. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours and trips, sponsorships and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.